0: welcome to the 12th episode of our limited series audio judo does jazz i'm kyle from the podcast audio judo and i'm here to introduce this episode but first i want to mention that both audio judo and audio judo does jazz are proud members of the pantheon podcast network if you are interested in any genre of music music history or just want to discover great new music pantheon has got at least one podcast that you'll love visit pantheonpodcasts.com to see the entire catalog On this episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz, it's not Chris! That's right, Matthew is taking over this episode to talk about guitars. Along the way, you'll get to know a little more about his history with jazz music and a little bit more about his past. Take it away, Matthew.
1: Guitar for me is a translation device. It's not a goal. And in some ways, jazz isn't a destination for me. For me, jazz is a vehicle that takes you to the true destination. A musical one that describes all kinds of stuff about the human condition and the way music works. Pat Metheny was that atrocity you ask let me tell you that was rob mike joe and me in our first ever band called after image named after the not jazz 1984 rush song playing jazz expose number four in the basement of my childhood home in the winter of 1986 what you hear are the nonsensical ramblings of four young men who had no idea what jazz was how to approach it what it meant or how it was supposed to sound. It was an experiment. You may be wondering why the guitars and bass seem to be playing in completely different keys. No idea. You may be wondering why the drummer, me, seems to be playing a modified 6-8 shuffle beat more suited for the blues. No idea. For me, at the time, jazz was the music of smoky clubs in questionable areas of town, because that's what TV and the movies told me. My heroes played jazz, Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa, two of my drumming idols, played big band, which at the time didn't occur to me was even a style of jazz. Again, I had no idea. What I did know from those experiments in the basement was that the lead guitarist in our band was a much better musician than the rest of us. Mike knew things about playing music, about hearing things I couldn't hear. It might not sound like it on the clip I played, but he understood jazz chords just maybe not where to play them. I knew from very early on that he was the kind of musician you kept around and close to your circle. So I did. Over the next several years, he and I would be in various bands together. After Image was put to bed, and Legend Rupert was born, with a group of uber-talented musicians who shared the common vision of playing. We played a lot. We practiced even more, and absorbed what we could from each other and other musicians we hung around with. I witnessed Mike get really good and challenge himself all the time. The stuff he played was innovative, and he used to spend hours working on developing a killer sound through effects and delays and distortion. At the time, I was in all of the high school bands. Mike was in none. Going into our senior year, I asked him why he didn't try out for the jazz band. It's an elective. We could jam. Use a lot of that time to practice. He said, okay. Little did I realize, even after being in jazz band for the last two years, that almost all of the solos were played on the trumpet or the alto sax with the rare solo reserved for the piano. So throughout that next year, I saw him languish in the back of the band. The whole year, we knocked out jazz band standard after jazz band standard. Songs like Birdland by Weather Report, Spain by Chick Corea, and even 25 or 6 to 4 by Chicago, that contained great guitar parts. But he was being utilized for color, essentially reduced to providing rhythm for the band. I would argue with the band teacher, as was my way, about giving the rhythm section of the band more time to shine. Where are our solos? Nah, we were the rhythm section for a reason, not the solo section. So there he was, smoke with no fire and I realized that the instrument that I had cherished for so long in the rock construct was merely an afterthought in this other form of music, and it pissed me off. I vowed to never really enjoy jazz music, other than fusion, which blended my beloved rock music and some jazz. I would learn jazz because it could potentially pay the bills, and a true musician embraces the playing of all forms of music, but anything that viewed the guitar as so pedestrian as jazz music seemed to, had no place in my heart and therefore not in my ears either. Chris has spent a lot of time on this program telling the stories of the legendary, iconic jazz artists of history. Pretty much everyone he has talked about has been responsible for changing or reshaping jazz at one point or another. Miles Davis changed music five or six times, and I believe it. Coltrane, Mingus, Monk, Parker, are all names that are synonymous with jazz music. As Chris referenced several times, they are the Mount Rushmore of the genre. What you won't see on that monument are any jazz guitarists. just doesn't happen. The iconic players of the genre, at best, may have redefined the way that particular instrument could sound like, but not the way the genre was received or interpreted. There were distinct periods of the development of the jazz guitar, It was originally a banjo that was played in jazz bands because it was easier to hear the metallic sound of the banjo as opposed to an acoustic guitar. And then it became amplified, which changed it again. Names like Eddie Lang, Charlie Christian, Django Reinhardt, and Tiny Grimes litter that early period of jazz guitar, accomplished musicians in their own right. But I'm not here to talk about any of them. I'm here to talk about three distinct original jazz guitarists who changed how I think about jazz music and are a joy to listen to. Born to an Italian family in Jersey City, New Jersey in 1954, Al Demiola learned to play guitar at eight years old by copying the sounds of Elvis Presley and bands he heard like The Ventures. His guitar teacher focused the youngster on jazz standards and the work of George Benson and Kenny Burrell. Those teachings proved vital to young Al's growth and eventually delivered him to Berklee School of Music in 1971. The first time I would hear Al play is when I was studying the work of Chick Corea, turned on to him by the constant playing of his song Spain in our jazz band class. That song had worn me down. We played it constantly, and I felt like there had to be more to Corea than just this one song. And boy, was there. I gravitated towards his work with his band Return to Forever, the fusion band that he formed after he left Miles Davis after recording Bitches Brew in 1970, Korea had just recently converted to Scientology and felt like he wanted to connect with the audience on a more personal level and wanted to use more avant-garde jazz to accomplish that task. Their first album, simply called Return to Forever, had future jazz giant Stanley Clarke on bass, Joe Farrell on flute and sax, Erto Morera on percussion, and Flora Purim on vocals and percussion. It was strangely eye-opening for me Because the music was so different, so rooted in nothing that I knew, that I was fascinated with it, and I used to listen to the song Crystal Silence almost daily. As a student at Berkeley, Demiola was also fascinated with the band, and had stated many times it was his favorite band in the world. He saw them multiple times, once with Bill Connors on guitar, and another with Earl Clue. Clue of acoustic guitar renown looked, according to Demiola, out of place, and a little lost. The music begged for electric treatment, for an instrument with equal footing in the soundscape that was being created. No more banishment to the back of the rhythm section. This instrument needed to shine. So after seeing them at school, he went back to Jersey, told one of his friends that, quote, I wish I had a chance to play with that band. That would be a dream. What Demiola didn't know was that his friend was an amateur recording engineer. His friend had a tape of Demiola playing, and that friend would contact Korea's management and play the tape for them. Korea was blown away by the tape. They contacted Demiola, and three days later, he was playing with them at Carnegie Hall as a member of the group. All of this at the tender age of 19. And what he would bring to the return to forever was a blistering pace, evidenced in songs like Songs to the Pharaoh King from their 1974 album, Where have I known you before? So by now, if you're a loyal listener of Chris's, you know that he and I have differing tastes when it comes to the world of jazz. My experience, my preference, is for jazz that is rooted in rock, even more specifically progressive rock. While I appreciate and love the classics and the legends, my heart takes me back here to the other bands. Bands like Spyro Gyra, like Brand X, like Mahavishnu Orchestra. And I'm here to tell you, it's okay not to love it all. It's okay to develop without listening to the Mount Rushmore artists, as long as you're finding joy in it. doesn't have to be hard to listen to. Okay, back to Demiola. As was Korea's way, he encouraged the artists that played in Return of Forever to write songs for the band. That made them all better artists, and Korea may have been the only person on the planet that had you sign a contract to join the band, and also... Sign a contract that enabled each member the ability to record solo albums while they were still in the band. That ultimately may have been the downfall of the band because each member's own star continued to rise and caused them to pursue their own paths. But for Korea, I think that was the point. Demiola would leave Return to Forever in 1976 and begin recording his first solo record, "Land of the Midnight Sun. And I'm sure you are all aware by now the best jazz musicians play with the best jazz musicians. So who did he have perform with him? Chick Corea, Stanley Clark, Steve Gadd, and I could do a drumming episode about just that guy, and a little bass player you may have heard of named Jaco Pistorius. If Coltrane, Parker, Roach, and Mingus are playing with the monsters of jazz, then these are the guys you want on your fusion record. And what became clear on his solo record is that he could play even faster, even more technical than he had in Return to Forever, like a train about to run off the tracks. Now, I've been a guitar fan from the very beginning. I had periods in my life when I was interested in just about any genre of guitar playing. I loved the Eddie Van Halens of the world for a while. I loved the Shredders for a while, the Satriani's and the Malmsteen's, the Vinnie Moore's and the Steve Vai's. But all of those were sort of a dabbling for me, maybe a dalliance. I enjoyed it for a while, but the interest waned. I always came back to the middle-of-the-neck players, guitarists who didn't need to make a guitar scream for me to know they were good. Players like Steve Rothery of Marillion, Steve Hackett of Genesis, Steve Howe of Yes, that's a lot of Steves, and David Gilmore of Pink Floyd were always my preferred players. For me, they gave the guitar a voice, a character, space to breathe. I explained this on an episode of Audio Judo once, that when guitarists like this would solo, they gave themselves places to go, avenues to explore, because they started and hovered around the middle of the register. They could go high and screamy or low and expressive. So the high-pitched wail made me lose interest in that style of playing. That was until I heard this. I mean, for Christ's sake, that is unbelievable and complex, beautifully brilliant. Demiola once said this, You need both abilities. To be able to sing a melody and play with space, and also to have the requisite technique to play the most intricate music. That makes you more complete and able to play a wider variety of music. It's a bunch of bullshit. Every time guitarists say, One note says so much more than 100. I always laugh at idiots who make that claim. Tell that to a flamenco player or a classical player and see what they say. It's almost a defensive reaction. They take something they lack, attack it, and claim they never wanted it in the first place. And that's precisely what I needed to hear. The combination of the two aspects. The ability to play fast if necessary. But as long as it's beautiful and meaningful, then it doesn't matter. My family always used to take vacations to the same place when I was a kid. All of our vacations were... And I know some of the Michigan listeners will appreciate this up north. We went up north. At first, we went camping in a pop up trailer, and then would eventually go to my parents' dream cabin on the shores of Lake Huron. And I used to wonder what it was like to travel to different places around the country or the world and how magical that must be something different. And that's what his style of music and playing did for me. It was a vacation, it was an entirely different viewpoint and universe. And while I never wanted to live there, because rock would always be my home, I certainly enjoyed visiting from time to time and getting some fresh air and new views. And by the time I started listening to Alan Holdsworth, I was in my late 20s and the father of three sons. And I had never heard anything like it, and I still haven't. And what's surprising about that fact is how many guitarists I have listened to in my near 50 years that name Holdsworth has a huge influence on their playing. Alex Lifeson of Rush, Eddie Van Halen, Joe Satriani, Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine, all name him as influences. Frank Zappa called him one of the most interesting guys on guitar on the planet. And as a further telling testament to just how innovative he actually was, Robin Ford called him the John Coltrane of the guitar. I don't think anyone can do as much on the guitar as Alan Holdsworth can. High praise indeed. Holdsworth was born in 1946 in Bradford, England, and was raised by his maternal grandparents. His grandfather was a jazz pianist and had moved to London to pursue a career in music. Holdsworth was not given his first guitar until he was 17, and his first teacher was his grandfather. He really didn't have any popular releases for many, many years, kind of languishing in relative obscurity for the first part of his career. He bounced around from little-known prog group to little-known fusion band through the 60s and into the mid-70s. And he recorded albums with Soft Machine and Jean-Luc Ponty that never amounted to much of anything. What fascinated me about his story, besides just his playing, was his disdain for the machine of the music industry, his open disgust for the way the business works and how the only goal of it, in his mind, was for a company to exploit artist for as much as possible and unlike a lot of artists that also feel that way he openly and vehemently expressed it in 1976 holdsworth was having a rehearsal session in a studio the label he was with at the time recorded the session without his or anyone else in the band's permission and then would release that album as his first solo record called velvet darkness none of the session musicians were compensated for their work So enraged was Holdsworth that he disowned the album entirely and refused to allow it to appear as part of his official discography. As recently as 2015, he said that he loathed the album and wished it had never been released. Over and over again through the course of his career, he would have fallings out with the members of his inner circle or his label about things he never authorized and things that should have never been released he continued to maintain what he considered his artistic integrity. In 1977, he was recruited by legendary Yes and King Crimson drummer Bill Bruford to join the supergroup UK. He ended up despising the experience and felt it was miserable because the band expected to solo to a particular construct in the song, and he was the architect of the improv solo. A band structure, a song structure, that expected him to do things a certain way, were not going to work for him. What happens when you listen to him is that you get the feeling and the sense the song could go anywhere at any time for any reason. Sometimes it's unsettling and a little unnerving. I also feel like this is why Chris loves Coltrane and some of the legends as much as he does, because they're very similar. They could change at any time. You never know what could be lurking around the corner. They just happen to be doing it on the sax or the piano, and he's doing it on the guitar. This is a piece of a collaboration Holdsworth did with jazz artist Gordon Beck back in 1979 on Beck's album Sunbird. interview with Guitar World magazine, Eddie Van Halen couldn't stop talking about Holdsworth and the influence he had on him. Eddie said, that guy is fantastic. He's bad. And I love him. And that Holdsworth was the best in my book. Furthermore, in a 1981 interview with Guitar World, he said, to me, Alan Holdsworth is number one. The result of the number one guitarist in the land at that time gushing about your playing influence He gets signed to Warner Brothers to record an EP with Ted Templeman, Van Halen's producer at the time. The album was called Road Games, and it featured Jack Bruce from Cream on vocals, and would receive a Grammy nomination for Best Instrumental Rock Performance in 1984. However, as was Holdsworth Way, he hated the experience and repeated creative differences with Templeman. This would start Holdsworth down a path in rock for the next couple years, but quickly ended when he discovered a new instrument. The synth, axe. the synth Axe was a fretted, guitar-like MIDI controller that was created in 1985 in part by Richard Branson's Virgin Music Group. It is merely a controller. It has no internal sound source and needs synthesizers to create any sound. It is an oddly shaped instrument. It has two sets of strings. A regular set like a guitar neck determines pitch and bend as the neck is constantly scanned and signals sent to the synth and a smaller set of strings that is velocity-sensitive. It also has a small 9-key keyboard on the face, and a whammy bar that could be programmed to do essentially anything, like a proper MIDI controller. Once Holdsworth discovered it, he would play it for the rest of his recording career and essentially become the face of the instrument. They only made a 100 of those or so anyway. He recorded his solo album, at Vaccaron, using only the Synthax. Here's a bit. There's a strangeness to his music that I connect to. I don't listen to it often, but when I do, it's a wonderful reminder of that elusive thing called artistic integrity. He never compromised. I guess when I start to examine who I listen to across all genres, those that are my preferences, the ones that don't compromise, they don't break down to write a record that just sells to sell. Hell, if you make something you love and it sells, all the better. But if it doesn't, if you are, say... Just writing a podcast to exercise the creative muscle that you have, even better. Make it because you love it, and don't be afraid to share it. You never know who else might love it or need it. My third choice of guitarists is, again, not one that I listen to a lot because, frankly, I don't listen to a lot of jazz, even fusion. I chose this partly because of the innovation and uniqueness of his style and the sounds that he produced, and partly for his ability to step away from the business. Stanley Jordan was born in 1959 in Chicago, was trained on piano and switched to guitars when he was 11. He attended Princeton and played with Dizzy Gillespie and Benny Carter. The first time I ever heard of him, and most likely saw him, was in 1988, when he recorded an album with Stanley Clark, called Hideaway. I had been addicted to that record for a while because I had been addicted to the playing of Stanley Clark, and I was curious about the interesting guitar playing I was hearing. When I finally saw him play, I was stunned. Jordan plays his guitar just like a piano. He plays with all ten fingers, on the fretboard, the whole time. It sounds so wonderfully complex and rich, and I was captivated by his sounds. In 1985, Bruce Lundvall became the president of the influential Blue Note Records, and Jordan was the first new artist that he signed. That same year, they released Magic Touch by Jordan. That album would get to number one on the Billboard Jazz chart, and stay there for the next 51 weeks. A record. And this is what it sounds like. That was Eleanor Rigby by The Beatles. Also included on that record was a cover of Jimi Hendrix's Angel that is just outstanding. And you're supposed to surround yourself with the best, right? So he did. Omar Hakim plays drums on the record. Charnet Moffat on bass. And just to wrap this up with some symmetry, Al Demiola was the producer of the record and also played cymbals on it. It's a moving album. And I figured he was destined for great things. But his career kind of stalled in the 90s, and while he has released a number of solo records over the last 35 years, his heart was in a different place. It was in an educational system called Integral Arts that he runs. It works at balancing the heart, the mind, and aims to use music as therapy. Beautiful and exquisite playing. And I end with that piece and Jordan because music is therapy. Therapy for all, cheap and available and effective. So when I first tried my hand at the whole podcasting thing, it was because I needed a creative outlet, or at least that's what I told myself. Sitting down every week to write down my thoughts on a particular record and then express those words through a shared conversation with my co host Kyle felt like that was the right thing to do. And we've recorded almost 70 episodes, and each one is unique in its own way. Partly because of the music, sure, but mostly because of what I have learned about myself. Writing about these records, whether known or unknown to me, has allowed me to explore a lot of buried memories and emotions that would have otherwise not surfaced. It's stories about my mom, my wife, my kids, and my childhood that helped to complete this picture of who I am And music is the therapy and i believe we have that all in us so today i am announcing that audio judo will be producing another new podcast to debut at the beginning of next year called musical dna it is our stories told with music and i want to hear from all of you me kyle from audio judo randy from audio judo chris from audio judo does jazz my wife and sons all have songs and records that have personally impacted our lives. And we're gonna tell you about them, first-person style. What's more, I wanna hear your stories. Write them down, send them to me. I'll read them on the air along with parts of the appropriate music. Tell me why that Def Leppard song changed your life or how the soundtrack to Les Mis brings you to tears. Let's share the music and the stories and make people smile, make people cry. Let's be humans again. You can email me at info at Give me your stories. So the band you heard at the beginning of this episode have all gone their separate ways. I haven't spoken to any of them in 28 years or so. But I'd like to believe that they wouldn't recognize the person in front of them anymore. I'd like to believe that I've grown up into a better man, a better friend. When Chris asked me to take the reins for this one episode, all I could think about was how much I didn't want to let him down. He's poured so much of himself into it, and I didn't want to be the one that soured it at the end of the day. I had a high standard to live up to, one that he sets every day in his writing and his life in general. He's a good man and a good friend. And when all is said and done, when you are done with whatever this life has to offer, isn't that what you want me to say about you? That you are a good person and a good friend? There are very few things that are better than that. And I'm glad you gave me the chance to speak to you today. I hope you learned something about the jazz guitar, even though I really barely touched on it. But you know, it doesn't matter. Because what I really wanted to say was to be innovative, to be creative, take breaks, let your mind explore. You don't have to love jazz or even like it to find something important and resonating in its sounds and deliveries. Just be open to the possibilities. Thank you so much for your time, everybody. And send me those stories. Bye-bye, everybody.